We'll hear argument now on number 92-114, uh, Cardinal Chemical Company versus Morton International. Mr. Schill. May it please the Court. The practice of the Federal Circuit at issue here has resulted in resurrecting patents which have been twice found invalid by district courts. This practice is out of step with the precedent of this Court and commercial reality. I want to make three points to you in my argument today. First, the Federal Circuit has jurisdiction to decide... Mr. Schill, in, in addressing us, I hope you will tell us how, if at all, your position differs from that uh, expressed by Mr. Coons. I certainly plan to, Your Honor. And tell us whether you think we have any controversy here at all. I certainly shall. May I proceed with my three points, Your Honor? Okay. That the Federal Circuit had jurisdiction to decide the patent invalidity issue, and this issue is not moot. The Federal Circuit's practice ignores the strong public interest in resolving the invalidity issue. And finally, that the Federal Circuit should always reach the issue of validity when presented on appeal in a declaratory judgment counterclaim, unless that issue becomes moot through happenstance during the appeal, or if, another or if the decision on another issue in the case completely resolves the controversy between the parties. And with respect to your question, Justice O'Connor, we believe that there is a case or controversy that has proceeded since the beginning in this case. There is a difference between the case brought by Morton on the infringement issue, that is, Morton is accusing us of infringement, that is decided by a very set of, special set of facts, and Cardinal had separate independent basis in which to assert its claim that the patent was invalid. If the patent is indeed invalid, then not only does Morton's claim fail against us, it fails against all parties, and not only against the particular products that were at issue in this case, but all the products that Cardinal may wish to uh, make in the future. Since this, um, since this issue, or these parties... I thought though that we granted certiorari on the question whether the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit errs when it vacates a declaratory judgment holding an asserted patent invalid merely because it determines that the patent is not infringed. Now that's the question as framed, right? Yes, Your Honor. As to that question, is there any difference between you and Mr. Kuhn's position? Um. I believe that the way I would put the issue or resolve that issue is that the, um, the court has erred because it has not resolved the controversy between the parties in this case. There may be some factual situations in which it need not reach the issue of validity. For example, one case might be where the issue of unenforceability was also there and the court decided that the patent was unenforceable, for example, either against the particular well, party you, or you against all the world. take the position that the policy adopted and now followed by CAFC is in error, that it shouldn't follow that policy. That's correct. And that seems to be the same position taken by your opponent. I agree that that is the same position ultimately that they take. We differ only on how we would express it. And so how is there a controversy then? How is there? I'm not sure there is a controversy on the point that, of what the Federal Circuit should do, on which you, on which you granted, sir. 
Um, I'm not sure that there is a conflict between us. You do argue that we, different we, consequences should follow, um, though you, you arguing that there's a difference between a counterclaim and a declaratory judgment, the respondent saying that, that the rules should be the same in either case. Or am I incorrect? Yeah, no, you, you are correct, Your Honor. Um, I, I believe that this Court's precedent in the Altwater, Altwater and Electrical Fittings case is still good law, and that in, uh, would require that there be a difference made between cases which are only filed with a bill and answer um, as opposed to a counterclaim that by the very nature of a, uh, a situation such as was present in electrical fittings, there was only a, um, an ac accusation, a, a claim of infringement and no counterclaim. Point. Yes, they would reach the issue on uh, all points. They would say that the Federal Circuit should reach validity on all points. Well, there's still an underlying dispute, of course, as to the uh, in, uh, validity well-known and infringement well-known of, of the patent. Yes, there? there is indeed, Your Honor. Do you take the position that there is any difference with respect to jurisdictional mootness depending on whether the issue was raised by counterclaim or affirmative defense? I'm not sure I understand your question, Justice Souter. Well, it, you, you, you have argued very persuasively that there is no jurisdictional mootness when the, when the issue of validity is raised by, by means of a, a counterclaim. Uh, when, when the issue is simply raised by, a, uh, by means of affirmative defense, uh, does that make any difference jurisdictionally as opposed to prudentially? Yes, I believe that it does, because a, uh, there is no, no right to have a decision on a, on a defense. Well, there may be no right to have it, but the court still has jurisdiction to render it, doesn't it? The court does still have jurisdiction to render it if it wishes to reach that issue. So the difference is prudential rather than jurisdictional? That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. In, in this case, the court, the Federal Circuit, vacated the declaratory judgment of invalidity that Cardinal won at the lower court. The only reason that it provided was its reference to the case View v. JAPEX. And in reviewing that case, the only rationale provided by the court was that since there was no indication in that case that, it that there, the dispute extended beyond the accused devices found not infringing, the court properly exercises its discretion to dismiss the cross-appeal as moot. A lot of work. What's wrong with that? Why isn't that a good reason? Uh, we find that that, would, that is, the court is either is incorrect in its formulation, I believe, because either the issue is moot and it has no discretion to reach it, that is, it's jurisdictionally moot under Article 3, or it's exercising its discretion and has taken into account certain factors in order to decide whether it should reach the issue. Here, since the court adopted this practice in 1987, it is merely cited to the View v. JAPEX case and gone no further. It has not reviewed the underlying facts in the case to determine whether there was indeed a basis for the continued controversy. Well, to say that it has discretion is not to say that it cannot exercise its discretion on a generic basis and to draw up entire categories of cases in which it will simply uh, decide that it should not go any further. And I, I think this Court has said one large category is uh, when the issue makes no difference to the judgment below, and it's a complex patent case. 
We don't want to have to spend the time figuring out the answer to the patent question when it makes no difference to the judgment below. Why isn't that perfectly reasonable? Well, um, if it made no difference to the judgment below, perhaps that would be proper, Your Honor, but I do believe it does make a difference to the, to the uh, decision below, especially in this case. This case was based on a separate counterclaim by Cardinal for invalidity of the patent. There was good cause for Cardinal to bring that action. There's no question that the district court felt that there was proper case or controversy jurisdiction on that issue. He rendered a judgment. No facts to change. All of a sudden, you're trying to oust the the declaratory judgment winner of its decision without any rationale. I agree you have a much stronger case with respect to the uh, counterclaim declaratory judgment action. But just talk for a minute about the uh, uh, no counterclaim, just uh, affirmative defense. Just an affirmative defense. Yes. If, if there's an affirmative defense, the affirmative defense relies upon the claim. Once the claim itself is gone, then there is really no basis for the defendant to prevail on its counter or in its, on its affirmative. So it really makes no difference to the holding to, to the decision below whether the appellate court goes on to review the uh, invalidity determination or not. And why should it expend its energy on that question? I mean, of course you can say, well, it'll make difference to parties in future cases. Of course it will, but uh, courts don't usually do things for that reason unless it affects the parties in front of them. Right. We, we do not take the position that they, the court has to. I would still take the position that the court may reach that issue. I'm sure it may. I think let's, let's, yeah. I, I, I concede it may, but why should it? I think you further take the position it should, don't well, you, or do you, you don't not, care? Not on, the, not on yeah. the issue, Your Honor, where it's raised as an affirmative defense. I would say that we're not in that category. I think my opposition is in that category. If it decided the validity issue, it would save itself a lot of work in the future, wouldn't it? Do you mean no matter how it was raised, Your Honor? Uh, um, no matter, no. No matter which way you decided uh, the validity issue. Yes. It, it, well, that's something I think that's within the discretion of the court to decide whether it should reach that issue based on the facts and circumstances of the case. And it well, may yeah, well I just save... Asked, wouldn't it save itself some, some work in the future? It may well save itself some work in the future. It certainly would have in this case if it had been decided all the way in the uh, first case, in the Argus case. Well, shouldn't it turn then simply on whether it has reasonable reason to believe that there are going to be a series of similar cases? And if so, then it would make sense prudentially to uh, to exercise its its jurisdiction and, and go ahead and decide it. I certainly agree, Your Honor. And, and in this case, that was the case. It was known at the time even of the Argus appeal that there were other cases pending, that two other cases were pending on this, and that um, basically we're back in the situation of what happened um, under the triplet case where a, uh, a patentee could go on asserting its patent against a series of unrelated defendants even after it had, it had been declared invalid um, because there was no estoppel. After blonder tongue, when this court created, uh, changed the rule and allowed the um, future defendants to assert raise, or raise judicata against the patent owner, then um, you would take you, you allowed future defendants to defend based on the previous in, invalidity of the patent by the patent owner. But in effect, because the Federal Circuit does not reach the issue of validity, it returns the, the patent that has been found invalid to the patent owner. He can go out and reassert it again. And 
the patent defendant is in a worse position because he can't even use the first judgment of invalidity against the patent. Because it's been vacated. Because it's been vacated. And the only way he can really get a judgment is if he's first found to be infringing. And then presumably the court would reach the issue of validity. So in this case, since we find that there was a case or controversy, no question about that, the important point I would think next that the court should consider is the court's policies that were announced in the Sinclair case and the Blondertongue case. And in Sinclair, this court said that of the two issues, the validity issue is the more important. The decision on invalidity tends to discourage future suits, saves judicial resources, parties' resources, leaves the field of invention open to others, knowing that they will not be threatened with this patent. If we agree with you and your colleague that if we agree with you that there should have been a decision, what do we say? Abuse of discretion or what? To the Federal Circuit, Your Honor? Yeah. What do we say their error is other than you should have decided it? I think really perhaps going back, they seem to be depending upon this court's judgment in the Altfather case. And I think what has taken the court off track is the statement in that case that says that because there were additional claims and devices at issue, there was proper jurisdiction. I think that is minimal. That's either an exemplary issue or should be limited to the position that was in extent at that point, which was licensee estoppel. What do you mean by an exemplary issue? Well, I think that the jurisdiction of the court is as broad as whatever fits under the Declaratory Judgment Act. And so long as there is a case or controversy under that act, then there is a right to have a determination made. And by exemplary, I meant a case or additional claims or devices is one example of when there is still a controversy between the parties. E period, G period. Yes. Do you think the Court of Appeals in the original case felt bound to come out that way under our cases? That's the only learning I can get from their view, the view of EJAPEX. So do you think they were, if we thought they misconstrued those cases, do you think if we disabused them of their error that they would then decide the validity issue? Or would they say, why should we fool with it? I believe, Your Honor, that the instruction from this court that the Althauter case should not be limited to the case of the licensee estoppel, really, that was in extent at that point in time. And clarification that the jurisdiction, so long as there is adequate jurisdiction under Declaratory Judgment Act, that issue should be decided so long as it is necessary to resolve the conflict between the parties. For example, I think that if the case arrived at the Federal Circuit and the patent had just expired, the court found non-infringement, there's probably no reason for it to go on and reach the validity issue. The same would happen if the court had decided an unenforceability issue, at least as to that party or perhaps as to the world on that patent. It no longer need reach the validity issue for other 
for any other reason, so that those would be situations where the court should exercise its discretion and not decide. And there may even be instances that I haven't thought of yet where the non-infringement would be an adequate resolution of all the issues in the case. But the court should be left with the scope to determine what those situations are. What was the vote in the Federal Circuit? Well, Judge Lurie wrote a concurring opinion saying that he would have reached the invalidity issue in this case and found the patent invalid. The other two judges wrote separately and did not reach that issue. They just cited you. Was there some suggestion of unbank? We had requested an unbank ruling, and three of the judges would have allowed the unbank hearing, including Chief Judge Neese. And did that include the dissenting judge? Yes, it did. It was Judge Lurie, Judge Neese, and Judge Rich, I believe, Your Honor. This issue has never really been addressed by the Federal Circuit in bank? It has not, Your Honor. They just have a long series of panel decisions, so this is the law of the circuit, and they left it there. That's correct. They have, beginning in 1987, this policy was adopted and continued since then. In each case, they only appear to cite the view of the JAPEX case and not give any further explanation of their reasons for making a decision. Well, maybe we should go no further than simply to say that it is an abuse of discretion to exercise no discretion and leave it to them to work out criteria rather than trying to set them here in this case. I think I guess I'm not sure how to respond to that, Your Honor. I think certainly that would You don't like the suggestion, I think. Since I appear before the Court, I'd like to I do believe that this Court's teachings in the precedent we've cited in Sinclair and Blundertung should play an important role in coming to the decisions of whether to reach invalidity in each case. I think it's a paramount public interest. In this case, I find a situation that I found difficult to deal with all through the case. It's hard to tell your client that you have to go back to trial on a patent that's already been found invalid merely because that issue was not reached by the Federal Circuit and given finality. And to have the patent twice declared invalid on the exact same basis to me convinces me that there was no error, that this is a tremendous waste of resources for a very small company and is something that will continue to happen, we believe, or could at least happen, something that is worth spending some judicial time to correct. Mr. Schill, it seems to me the formula that you're suggesting we adopt or the rule has enough imponderables and exceptions in it that it's not going to be too much guidance to the Federal Circuit. We're just going to end up saying you should have decided the validity of the patent in this particular case. In the first instance, Your Honor, I believe the lower courts have the duty to decide whether there is a case or controversy. So long as they've made that decision, then the Federal Circuit, I think, is in the position of a reviewing court deciding whether the lower court 
has properly made its decision on the existence of a case or controversy, so long as that review convinces it that the lower court was correct, then I think it should reach the invalidity issue as long as it's raised by counterclaim. Because the defendant is left without its remedy to resolve the conflict, the uncertainty between the parties. And what are the situations in which you say that the Federal Circuit need not reach the validity issue? The only two that I've been able to come up with so far, Your Honor, are the issue, for example, where the patent has expired somewhere around the time of the appeal, and to decide that issue would really be a moot point. The, um, the other would be, for example, if there was a, um, uh, a finding of unenforceability of the patent, also that issue would be redundant. It would give relief. It would not give any additional relief than the um, finding of non-infringement. Mr. Shea, what's the difference between unenforceability and invalidity? Um, the uh, unenforceability, there are a couple of different circumstances of unenforceability. It may just be unenforceable because of equitable factors against the particular defendant. Another unenforceable re- reason for finding unenforceability oh, is, you for mean example, like a, no. inequitable conduct before the patent office, which would make the patent perhaps invalid or, or unenforceable against any person. Well, but that would be, that makes the patent invalid in the faith. It's procured by fraud, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, but you're suggesting there might be a case where it's unenforceable uh, against a particular licensee or a particular infringer because of inequal, I see. Yes. Okay. But I don't know why that should necessarily make uh, the interest in having the validity of the patent determined for other parties, uh, I mean, totally, uh, no. I, I agree, Your Honor, from the standpoint of uh, the public interest, I don't yeah. think the factors would Which is one of the things Sinclair talks about. Yes, but I don't see that there is a need to resolve the particular conflict before the court to decide that issue, only from a societal need to and, try and, and... And let me also be sure I get the thrust of your basic position. You're challenging the Federal Circuit's rule when the district court has already decided both issues. You're not necessarily suggesting that the district court would have the same duty to decide validity in every case. Maybe it would, I don't know, but isn't it a little different situation when you already have a judgment than when you're still in the trial court? Yes, I think that is a different situation, Your Honor. And the trial court has before it the closest, uh, is closest to the facts of the case and knows when they're, or how to judge whether the controversy is real between the parties or not. Well, I suppose you'd say the trial court is the same as far as the as far as the uh, counterclaim is concerned, as far as the declaratory judgment action is concerned. There's no more basis for the trial court to uh, dodge that bullet than there is for the court of appeals. No, and I, mean, I, I can understand on the uh, on the defense if, if the trial court wants to uh, just find no infringement, uh, it may decide not to go ahead with the uh, invalidity as a defense. But if there's a separate claim, a counterclaim on invalidity, can the trial court just say uh, uh, there's, there's no infringement and uh, that's the end of the case, case dismissed? Well, the Declaratory Judgment Act is discretionary. So even though there is a case or controversy, to me, it seems as if that... To be sure, but is, 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 a, is a proper basis for exercising that discretion merely that you have dismissed an, inco- an accompanying infringement action? No. 
any more than it would if you brought the declaratory judgment action separately when there had been no infringement action. That's correct. I mean, I, I can't imagine. Where you, can you say you can always dismiss a uh, declaratory judgment action for infringement in your discretion with no other reason than that it is a declaratory judgment action for infringement? No, I Certainly not. not. And, no, and not why can you do it simply because it happens to be attached to a, uh, uh, to a um, uh, not infringement, in, invalidity? Why, why can you do it simply because it happens to be attached to, a, a, to an infringement action? I can't understand that. In other words, uh, th there's the same unflagging obligation to pursue a declaratory judgment action as there is an injunction action. That's the position. Virtually unflagging. Yeah. Virtually unflagging. <laughs> yes, Your Honor. The, uh, I think, um, to sum up in this sense, we, we think that the court should consider as factors, Your Honor, that part of its responsibility is to effectuate the purpose of the Declaratory Judgment Act to relieve the parties from uncertainty, insecurity, and controversy, to prevent the misallocation of resources which occurs when the litigation of the patents is found invalid is allowed, that is, relitigation of those patents, and that they should reach the more important issue of patent validity in their deliberations. This would allow, and you would allow relitigation of patents only under the terms of blonder tongue, that is, only when the patent owner has not had a full and fair opportunity to litigate the validity issue. Otherwise, its rights have been protected, and its right to continue asserting the patents should not be renewed by the court's refusal to reach the merits of the issue. So, and I'd like to reserve the remaining portion of my time for rebuttal. Mr. Schill, how do you think the Federal Circuit got into this box? A uh, hundred years ago, I was on a court of appeals, and it seems to me that this question was always presented, and we always reversed when it was ruled the way the uh, Federal Circuit has done it here, routinely. And uh, I would have thought it would have been settled years ago, but the Federal Circuit went off on its own road, didn't it? It, to me, it, it just seems as if the interpretation they felt was necessary for, to interpret Altfather in these situations led to the practice, that they were trying to you know, preserve judicial economy so that they did not have to keep relitigating the issue. But um, I don't think it saves judicial time in the long run. Mr. Schill, was Judge Markey still on the circuit when they adopted this rule? Yes, Your Honor. He was. Thank you, Mr. Schell. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Coons. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in response to the question that Justice O'Connor posed, within the confines of the specific facts of this case, there is no difference whatsoever between the position of petitioner and respondent. As to whether they should have decided they could. That is correct. But there's a major dispute between you on validity. There certainly is, and there is also a major dispute with regard to those situations in which the appellate court, the Federal Circuit, should decide validity. Uh, I think we, we differ both in terms of analysis and in result. And respondent's position is quite clear. <clears throat> because of this court's 
decision in 1971 in Blonder Tongue that what is required there is a fundamental right on appeal to decide the validity issue on the merits, and that must be done in every case because of the public interest that this Court recognized in that case. That obviously goes beyond the facts of this particular case because, as has been pointed out, this case does involve a situation in which there is a declaratory judgment action. In fact, it is probably the rare case in which a defendant infringer does not interpose a declaratory judgment action. But conceptually, the reason why the Federal Circuit should address the validity issue has nothing to do whether there is the presence of a declaratory judgment count or not. It's really bottomed in this Court's analysis in the Blonder Tongue case. And it's kind of interesting to look at the position of the petitioners and the respondent in that case because in both of their briefs, neither the petitioner nor the respondent urged that the triplet rule, which was then in effect, ought to be modified in any respect. In fact, what they said is the triplet rule should be maintained. And in this Court's Blonder Tongue decision, it stated in petitioner's brief at page 12, though petitioners stand to gain by any such result, we cannot urge the destruction of a long-accepted safeguard for patentees merely for the expediency of victory. And that safeguard that was referenced in that was the safeguard against an improvident judgment of invalidity because under the triplet rule, it really made no difference whether the patent was held valid or invalid except with respect to the particular parties because in that setting, it would be raised judicata as between the particular parties. But beyond that, if there was another party who was believed to infringe, then a second suit could be had. So that safeguard was the ability on the part of the patent owner to file multiple lawsuits. And when this Court decided in Blonder Tongue was, no, that is not proper. There is a public interest in deciding the validity of patents, and what should be done is to provide the patent owner with one full and fair opportunity. And respondents submit that that one full and fair opportunity inherently includes the right to decision on appeal with respect to the merits of the validity issue. It doesn't make any difference. You would say that if the district court, when it's faced with claims, infringement claims and claims on the other side of invalidity, has to decide them both. That's correct. Or maybe just decide, maybe you get to validity first. And you don't have to fool with invalidity, do you? You mean fool with non-infringement? I mean non-infringement. You don't have to. I think that the better practice, certainly, it's almost one of false economy because I think the Federal Circuit practice is well rooted in the fact to have the trial courts decide both issues because if the decision is deemed to be inappropriate 
on validity, for example, which before this view of the JAPEX procedure, and that's part of the problem, that literally as many times as not, that trial court holding of invalidity was reversed. Yeah. So in those 50% of the cases, the problem would be that not having decided infringement, then back down the case would go, yeah. and certainly that sort of piecemeal litigation would be, uh, I think, would take up more, more judicial time than it would take to simply do but it all at least, at once. Uh, your position would be the, the uh, district court, if there's a validity issue presented, it should be decided. Yes, that's correct. Are, are, are you telling us, or, or can you tell us, that uh, in almost every instance of a patent litigation in the district court, the district court reaches both issues? I think that's correct. I'm aware of certain search, uh, situations in which bifurcation is done, for example, and uh, issues are decided one, one by one. But in virtually every case, um, I think the practice is that the district court does decide both issues. It, it, would seem, it would seem to me that uh, there, there, there may be cases in which the evidence uh, on, on infringement, the, the proof that's necessary to resolve the infringement is very easily managed, and the patent validity question is extremely complicated, and that it's only wise for the district court to proceed to the infringement issue to dispose of the case. And I think that certainly could be done by the exercise of judicial restraint. And like any court which is not a court of last resort, the problem would be that what may be entirely clear to that trial court, the appellate court may decide that's not the case and then send it back down for validity. But certainly within the exercise of, of, of judicial restraint, uh, in the first instance, if it is that clear, uh, I think that the trial court has a discretion to decide that issue or not. But eventually, if... So, there, so that there is discretion, so far as you're concerned. Is that, that is discretion also in the, dis, in the appellate court? Well, I, I think I misspoke, because I think there would be discretion to do so, but if you, if you, once there is an appeal, uh, and the issue has been, well, let me, let me backtrack on that. I think in those circumstances, if, if not, if validity was never decided, then it has never been put to issue. So I think that both the go back, and I, I agree with, I guess my position is, is, is the same, that if validity has never been decided, it's never been put into in, in the issue, then I don't think Blondertongue would come into play, and the Federal Circuit would have the same discretion uh, that, it, that the trial court would, because the infringement would decide the issue. But if validity is put into play, <clears throat> and there is a contest between that, then by the trial court, then, it, then under our position uh, as respondents, blonder tongue requires a consideration of the validity issue upon appeal in any instance, except for the rare situation in which, for example, a patent has expired in which, uh, under what has been called prudential mootness, the issue of, of whether the patent is valid or not is so attenuated that it doesn't make any difference. It would be imprudent to then go ahead and consider that issue and, and go ahead. But other than that sort of a circumstance, if validity has been put into issue, then it becomes part of the case or controversy and must be decided. If we were to adopt that rule, is there any danger that uh, powerful and well-funded patent holders could pick uh, uh, their target um, 
for declaratory relief by, uh, by prompting a suit from a, an infringer, by, by, by suing an infringer with uh, very little assets? I don't think it would really make any difference. Why, why wouldn't it? Because if, if, if I wanted to, uh, to test uh, a patent and to sue for infringement, I'd, I'd probably pick the weakest defendant in sight. But even if that were done, and even if there were a decision of, of, of if the patent was valid or technically it's the defendant's burden, so the holding would be that there has not been that clear and convincing showing and the patent was not valid. But even if that were affirmed, all that does is decide the issue as between the parties because there is no mutuality with respect to validity. And every time there is a presumption of validity that certainly should be attached, but the very next lawsuit, it doesn't buy a patent owner anything to have selected that target because every case is independent. The patent owner puts the patent on the line every time. time. Now, another point. Well, at, at least then uh, there's there's no reason to go forward if if you don't think that this particular uh, uh, alleged infringer cares about the issue anymore, right? So it isn't just about the issue of validity, right? I mean, you you've just said it really is only important as to uh, as to those two parties. No, oh, I. If I did, I, I spoke in error because I think in blonder tongue, uh, there's a third party, uh, and that is the public, and that the public uh, has an interest in patents, and I think that that issue was something that... But the public isn't affected. You tell me later lawsuits are later lawsuits. There's a presumption of validity that it acquires, but, uh, well, that's what but we, the, the issue can be relitigated, right? It certainly can be relitigated, but... There is a situation in which if you do not resolve validity and you follow the Federal Circuit practice as has been done here, uh, well, step, stepping back in point of time, that the Federal Circuit has been around for well over 10 years. And prior to 1986, 87, when this view practice came into play, uh, they had decided routinely both validity and infringement. And in those cases, statistically, almost as Many times as not, the patents that were held uh, valid by the district court were reversed on appeal, or excuse me, the patents that were held invalid about 50% of the time were reversed on appeal and the patent was, was held valid. And I think that, the, that what came out of blonder tongue and why it's important to the public is that uh, there ought to be some certainty of, of result once the validity issue has been raised so that you can distinguish between patents that, uh, in which the validity claim has not been established and those in which the invalidity claim was in fact correct and to the extent that there are, quote, scarecrow patents uh, or the like, that those patents should be out of the rules. Okay, the public should not have to face... What I'm saying is I don't understand what that means if you say the whole thing can be relitigated again in the next case anyway. It can only be relitigated if the validity of the patent is, is, is restored or is determined on appeal. If it isn't, I mean, that's cert that issue can certainly come up again, and but that would be left then to another lawsuit, and that would be the part of the multiple litigation in which this 50% of the patents that would have been held invalid 
then are still on the rolls, if you will, and it takes another lawsuit, <clears throat> another allocation of resources to deal with the issue. You say you, you, if, you lose about, if you lose on invalidity, uh, invalidity, that's the end of it. That is the end. That's right. But if Once you win on, on invalidity, you're going to have to keep on letting in no matter correct. what. That's correct. But will the Court of Appeals, uh, on essentially the same charge of invalidity, uh, if it is previously found a patent valid, adhere to its earlier decision? I think that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I can't recall... As I'm standing here, if I can ever, if I can think of a case in which the, the Federal Circuit has looked at uh, the issue of validity on on, on two different uh, on two different occasions, I, I am aware of situations uh, in which a patent has been held valid in in one case and then held invalid in a second or third case, and I think uh, so. There are those sorts of situations. I just don't know if the Federal Circuit has. Uh, has itself dealt with that sort of an issue. Well, suppose suppose the uh, the appellate court is dealing with a case in which the district court has found the patent to be uh, to be valid. Uh, why can't the appellate court say, well, there's really not much use in in, in if I vacate the decision below without ruling on the validity issue? I'm really not depriving anybody of anything because that validity would be relitigable anyway in the next case. Why isn't that a situation where, in the sound exercise of its discretion, the Court of Appeals might say, "I'll just leave it be"? Well, I think it certainly, I think it certainly could, and there, there certainly is a, is a distinction between whether a patent has been held invalid in the trial court or whether it has been held valid. Invalid is a stronger case for getting to it on appeal, a much stronger case, isn't that, it? That certainly, yeah. that, that certainly is the case. But if you follow blunder tongue and you look at the concept of wanting to provide one full and fair opportunity, uh, that includes the right to appeal on the merits because uh, just as the trial court could be wrong in either event, you prevent that sort of a situation. And, and it could be that the, that the valid holding was, was incorrect and the patent should be held uh, invalid. Certainly, there is a presumption of validity, and it's less of a problem. But if, in fact, patents are imbued with the public interest that is throughout this court's uh, opinion and blinder tongue, then conceptually, it should not make any difference whether the trial court's decision was valid or invalid. It ought to be considered on appeal. Uh. As long, as long if if if, infring, if uh, validity is at issue and infringement is at, at issue uh, in the trial court, would it make any difference uh, of whether the patent was held to be infringed uh, or non-infringed? Not as far as blunder tongue is concerned, and in our position with respect to considering that that issue on appeal, I think that. Uh, it ought to be considered in, in either event, because if patents do, in fact, have the public interest, and certainly respondents contend that uh, both good patents and bad patents ought to be identified and there ought to be a separation between the two, uh, and that the issue ought to be resolved, then Blonder Tongue would say, regardless of whether uh, how the infringement issue was decided, the validity issue ought to be decided on appeal. Now, obviously, by exercising judicial uh, restraint and the like and, and in the management of legal issues, uh, 
to conserve their time, the Federal Circuit may choose to decide the validity issue first, as Judge Lurie had, uh, had suggested. Wherein does your position differ from Mr. Schill's in this respect, Mr. Kuhn? I think it differs in the respect with which we were uh, just discussing. On the limited issue before this Court, where there is a declaratory judgment count, we do not have any difference whatsoever. But our contention is that uh, this Court is faced with, in effect, uh, rationalizing its cumulative present precedent, Alt-Vader, electrical fittings, uh, and blonder tongue, and that in our position it really is immaterial whether there is a declaratory judgment count or not. Or just an affirmative defense? Or just an affirmative defense. You, you say that the validity should be decided in, in either event? That's correct. By the Federal Circuit. That's correct. At least where it's been, well, of course, where it's been decided by the lower court. That's correct. And when you were speaking earlier about when the lower court had to decide it, in your view, and would be an abuse of discretion not to decide it, were you assuming that there was a declaratory judgment uh, uh, counterclaim or, or not? Because, frankly, I, I, it seems to me that it's up to the district judge how many issues he want to re, wants to resolve. I, I, I'm not inclined to say that uh, he has to resolve two issues if one will get rid of the case. Uh, but when there's a declaratory judgment uh, claim, I feel a little bit differently about it. What, were you addressing the declaratory judgment claim only, or do you assert that even when there's only an affirmative defense, the district court has an obligation to reach the uh, invalidity point? I think that federal, federal Circuit practice and, and what we've all more or less grown up with is a situation in which the trial courts uh, uh, have, in fact, exercised their, their discretion and have, in fact, considered both issues. And I think the reason is, is to attempt to avoid piecemeal right. litigation because if they happen to be wrong on the issue that they decide, infringement, for example, then what happens is you then go back and you have to decide something else when it's not fresh. It takes more time and all that sort of thing. And so sure, but you can say that in a lot of different contexts, in, in, in a lot of different other lawsuits, and I don't know any rule that says a district judge has to decide any more than is minimally necessary to, get, to uh, resolve the dispute. I don't know why this area would be any different. And I, I think that, and I don't contend to the contrary. Yeah. May I just throw out, I, I don't know if this really sheds any light on anything or not, but are there not some cases in which there's a dispute about how to interpret the claims, and if you interpret the claims broadly, you may have a stronger claim of invalidity, or if you construe them narrowly, there's a better defense to the infringement charge. And so that you're not always, I mean, sometimes your determination of the merits of one of the two issues may color your, your determination of the other issue. Am I right on that? or is You are that, correct. Yeah. I don't know if that might complicate it. I'm, I'm, what, 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 very frankly, one of the things that worries me about a case where you don't have an adversary on the precise question before us, and much of the discussion is about other cases where there's an affirmative defense and so forth, whether we really have any business talking about that. The case before us seems to me very, very easy, but we've talked hypothetically about all sorts of situations, and I, I'm not sure we're, it would be appropriate for, to go, for us to go much beyond what we have to do to decide this case. Well, I think it depends on, I think we, I would be certainly satisfied with that result, but I think this is an opportunity for this court to provide 
some definitive bright line approach uh, that would, I think, satisfy all all of the parties. So you want us to talk about what district courts could should do and all that? Well, I think district courts can take care of themselves right now. All right, with all right. So we don't, you don't, you don't, you don't insist that we give the district courts a lot of advice. Well, I'm sure that that, that that happens. I think in this case to resolve it, I'm looking at the federal circuit practice, and and I think that the answer you're you were quite right uh, that oftentimes. The validity issue and infringement issue are intertwined, and you have to interpret the claims. And that's something which has to be done in either in, in, in any event. And if that is not done and is not done properly, that's part of what we think has, has occurred here. What happens is that uh, you begin to meld the issues together, and it, and it does affect the thinking. And so I think that that certainly has to be done. And <clears throat> there, it is a rare case in which. Uh, declaratory judgment count is, is not there. So in terms of result, we're probably not talking about a lot of cases. But in terms of approach, what I submit is that the Blondertongue decision requires a consideration of validity when the trial court exercises discretion to decide that issue, whether it's decided valid or not. I think anything short of that would be a retreat from the sort of, uh, of, of principles that were, that were excuse me, enunciated in blonder tongue. And I think that uh, what we've seen, that the concern about the safeguard over the 20 years uh, has, has certainly been something that has been put to rest. I think everyone is comfortable with the situation of one full and fair opportunity. Do you think that most... Uh Patent lawyers around the country uh, agree with you? <clears throat> I haven't made a survey. <laughs> Do you know anyone that doesn't agree with you that we can get up here to argue? The other side? <laughs> I was hoping you weren't going to put me in that situation. But all I can all I can say by way uh, yes, but I don't respect it. Right? <laughs> Well, I think that the, I think that the point uh, is that certainly from the AMICI, from the American Bar Association, the American Intellectual Property Law Association, and from the Federal Circuit Bar Association, you see a unanimity of view that this practice is not something that uh, everybody is fond of, and that uh, it feels maybe that's why really we should be ended. Maybe that's why we didn't get an amicus in this case. We couldn't find one to argue the other side. Well, I have been. This is this is all hearsay, and perhaps it's not admissible at this stage. But I have been told that uh, uh, Judge Bennett's uh, law clerk, and he wrote the uh, the concurring opinion in the View v. Japex. You mean he drafted it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I stand, I stand corrected. He drafted the opinion. Uh, but at any rate, what I'm, what I'm told is that uh, he believes that that was, that was proper, and I'm sure that it was, that it was well. I think you're right. That's hearsay. Yeah. <laughs> I think that we're, from, from my point of view, that one of the things which, frankly, I have not found any precedent uh, that is squarely in point. But is the issue of we have Article Three case or controversy? We have prudential uh, moodness. 
uh, <clears throat> and we have uh, mootness being thrown around uh, oftentimes a little bit loosely, and I submit that uh, a court such as the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is not a court of last resort, cannot itself by its own action create either jurisdictional mootness uh, nor can it uh, create prudential mootness. The prudential mootness occurs in a situation <clears throat> where it's a happenstance through it's some, some extrinsic fact, uh, something which was in dispute, a report or whatever was, was issued, a bankruptcy plan which has already gone so far along in reorganization that it would be nonsensical to provide uh, relief. Those are the sorts of prudential mootness uh, issues that come up, but there is no situation in which <clears throat> a court, which is not a court of, of last resort, can by its own action create uh, a situation in which the, the case is moot, whether you look at that as jurisdictionally moot or as prudentially moot. <clears throat> and I think that uh, that perhaps is where the error uh, came into play. I think that the only thing that I would, <clears throat> additional point that I would like to make is that you look at this from the standpoint of the patent owner, and part of the problem when you have the Federal Circuit practice is <clears throat> what has occurred here. You have one half of an opportunity to litigate, which is accorded to Morton in the Argus case. You have one half of an opportunity to litigate, which was accorded in the Cardinal case, and the problem is that this is one situation in which one half of an opportunity and one half of an opportunity does not end up to be one full opportunity. That one half of an opportunity may satisfy the cynical patent owner who only wants to save his or her patents. But that same one half of an opportunity only serves to wholly frustrate a responsible patent owner as Morton who believes an erroneous trial court decision was reached would like to have that rectified on appeal. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Coons. Mr. Schill, you have four minutes remaining. I would just like to make uh, two points. First, the, the presumption of validity that's been discussed uh, seems to be imbued with some substantive right by uh, Morton. It really is only a procedural device to put the burden of proof of invalidity on the person attacking the patent. And I think that should be kept in, in mind when you're deciding whether there's some kind of unfairness um, of not deciding that issue or deciding invalidity and then uh, not going on to reach the merits. The difference we have with Morton is that if the counterclaim or if the um, un invalidity is raised only as an affirmative defense, we don't believe the court necessarily must reach that issue. And in conclusion, I believe that we would request this court to remand the case to the Federal Circuit with a direction that they reach the issue of validity and reach the merits substantively on that issue. Thank you, Mr. Schill. The case you. is submitted. <clears throat> the Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <clears throat>